You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany Sermon Series, Receive, Finding Freedom Through Healing. In this series from the Gospel of Matthew, we learn beautiful insights into the heart of God, the nature of His grace, and the pathway of faith that leads us to freedom. Now hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake, with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went and woke him, shouting, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus responded, Why are you afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and waves obey him. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake, in the region of the Gadarenes, two men who were possessed by demons met him. They came out of the tombs and were so violent that no one could go through that area. They began screaming at him, Why are you interfering with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance. So the demons begged, If you cast us out, send us into that herd of pigs. All right, go, Jesus commanded them. So the demons came out of the men and entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. The herdsmen fled to the nearby town, telling everyone what happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you all. My name is Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, welcome. The title of the sermon today is The Man is in the Boat. And that's an answer to one of life's hardest questions or most difficult situations. So I want you to think for a second. When, when in your life has the bottom dropped out? Where there's been the moment where the unexpected happened, uh, maybe an unexpected tragedy, an unexpected loss or change. Let's go back there for a second. Um, can you remember what it felt like, the, the first moments, the first hours and days? Remember the pain, the confusion? Maybe there was fear. I've noticed, by virtue of what I do for a living, a few common responses to those experiences. I'm not really saying any of these are right or wrong, just as much as this is how a few ways that people tend to respond to these kinds of situations. Some folks compare. So we'll say things like, I lost my job, but I didn't lose my house. I I lost a child, but I didn't lose a spouse. I don't know. In essence, we find some way of saying it could have been worse. And so, in, in this place, uh, folks are trying to minimize their pain by comparing their pain to the pain of someone else. Another common response I, I see is, I would call it rationalizing. It's where we re-narrate a story 
to try to help it make more sense. If we can connect dots, we think it'll help with the pain. So we'll say things like, you know, mom and dad were doing the best they could. I know he did this, but he didn't mean it that way. It just seemed that way when I was young. Don't worry about that, mom. That's the sign of life. Amen. Blessed to be a church with crying babies, y'all. It's a, thank you. Thanks for the two applauds. It's a sign of life. Y'all remember how embarrassing that would feel when your kid was crying? Who cares? It's life, man. So, you know, we'll say things. We'll try to make sense of things that happened, rationalize them to hopefully make it feel better. Another way that's really common in this part of the country and in churches is we'll spiritualize our pain. And so that will, someone will say something like, you know, this thing happened, but God works all things for the good of those who love him, which is a true verse. But we'll say this in the midst of pain, either our own pain or someone else's pain, really, I think, as another way of just trying to make it hurt less. In each one of these strategies, you know, there's a way of trying to leave the pain over here and finding something we can put over top of it that will make it go away. So we're kind of indirectly dealing with the pain. And the cumulative effect of this, so over time, almost always gives birth to some form of despair or distrust. We've been wondering who's really in charge of all of this. And if you're here at church, you're probably tempted to respond to that question with God is. And again, if you're in, whatever, if you're going to say who's in charge, God, God is almost always the right answer in church, right? So maybe you can't quite bring yourself to really doubt with your mouth, even though we probably do with your life, but you can't doubt with your mouth that God is in charge. So maybe what will happen then is, yeah, God is in charge, but he's this kind of cold disappointed, uninterested father. He's got way more important things to deal with. It's like, yeah, he's got a universe to run. He's not too worried about whether or not your house closes or whatever it is that's bringing you anxiety. He'll keep the universe running, but he's got too much going on to care about whatever that thing is you're thinking about. I think the stories that are before us, they may seem unrelated, I think they give us a, a better way through our pain and a bit of a warning of, of what may happen if we want to journey through it. And the lesson that I hope to show you guys is simply that the man is in the boat. So three questions that we have to answer to deal with our pain and to see that the man is in the boat. Who is in charge? What's he in charge of? And probably the hardest question will be, where is he? So... We've, we've got a familiar story here. Jesus is on a boat with his disciples. Verse 24 tells us something happens here. Uh, suddenly, a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Suddenly. We had a suddenly last week. Suddenly. These kinds of sudden violent storms are possible on, on the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee. Uh, so I wouldn't, it's not quite that they were expected to happen, but it wasn't some crazy catastrophe when they did. It was known that because of the way the place is set up, these kinds of wild 
out of nowhere violent storms could show up. So on the one hand, it's not like, it's not totally crazy. It's not a total fluke that this would happen. But try to put yourselves in the shoes of one of the disciples and think about how unexpected this would be. Before getting on this boat, why are they on the boat? They're going somewhere else after spending a few days healing people. They just watched Jesus do miraculous things. And then they're getting on the boat. And remember, these are professional fishermen. Why is Jesus sleeping? Well, one, he's tired. It gives us a picture of the humanity of Jesus. He did all of these healings. He's tired. And what boat would be a better boat to sleep on than the one being piloted by lifelong fishermen? You, you know what I mean? He's, so if you're one of the disciples, we've spent almost all of our life on the water, and we're with Jesus, who just did all of this stuff. Surely, surely we're safe. Jesus is sleeping, but we've got our skills. And then... But suddenly, the unexpected happens. I think one quick side note that some of us need to hear is this story reminds us that the bottom can drop out even after you start following Jesus. Life can get scary and difficult even after following Jesus. And if you became a Christian long enough, most of your fear, most of the pain in your life happened after you follow Jesus. And some of us were sold a brand of Christianity that says it'll just get perpetually easier and better. And I don't, it's just hard to find that in the Bible. That's kind of a side point there. Scary stuff happens even as you follow Jesus. Life is hard and it's filled with suffering. And we see a common response to what happens when life gets hard and we experience some of its suffering. Verse 25, the disciples went and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. The same story is recorded in Mark's gospel, and uh, there Mark has the disciples saying, how, uh, or don't you care that we're dying? Don't you care? It's, it's a little bit more of a rebuke a little bit more accusatory. And here in Matthew, it's, this is translated from three staccato words. They, they literally scream, Lord, save dying. <laughs> you know, like, they're so scared they don't even have the energy for complete sentences. Lord, save dying. Doubt, despair, distrust. You ever felt the pain so deep you thought you couldn't breathe? You didn't know how you'd get through the day, let alone someone comes up with, what's your five-year plan? And it's like, brother, I don't have a one-day plan. So let's be easy on the disciples here. You've, you've gone to this place. How, hard, how long did it take you before you started shaking your fist at the sky and saying, how dare you, God? Don't you care about what I'm dealing with? Like this, we do this, y'all. They get something a little bit right here. Powerful lesson for us. What did they cry out? Lord. They cried out, Lord. Before this, they called Jesus teacher. Now they're calling him Lord. When the bottom drops out, you need a Lord, not a teacher. A teacher gives you information. A teacher can give you an explanation. In the boat, the teacher would say, well, because of the low pressure system moving through here and the Sea of Galilee is low and it's high, this is where the storm is coming. They usually last 45 minutes to two and a half hours, and the survival rate being on a boat in a storm like this is 18%. <laughs> you know, like, information only takes you so far in the crisis. See, when... When the bottom drops out, you don't need a teacher, you need a Lord, because a Lord can give you rescue. Jesus 
His response gives us a clue of what this rescue means or how our help will come. In verse 26, remember, the disciples said, Lord, save dying. And Jesus responds with, why are you afraid? Jesus ever bother anybody else? Does he ever bother you? One person in the sound booth. Sometimes y'all come to church lying. <laughs> Why are we afraid, Jesus? Well, if you look around, we're about to drown. This boat was not meant for this kind of a storm. What do you mean? Why are we afraid? We'll talk about some of this next week. He says, you have so little faith. He literally calls them little faiths. He's he's calling them cowards. And yet their question seems very reasonable to me. Implicitly, when Jesus is saying, why are you afraid? It might be helpful for us to think about him standing up being like, why would you be afraid right now? Why would you be afraid right now? Why? Why? Because the man's in the boat with you. This is a way of Jesus saying, if you guys knew who I was, you would not be afraid right now. If you really knew what I was up to or what I was about, you would not be afraid right now. This is Jesus saying, I'm in charge right here. Who is in charge? Well, even amidst the storm, Jesus is in charge. And that can be easy to say. It is easy to say, Jesus is in charge. I just said it. You could memorize that if you wanted to. There's a temptation underneath there. If you're one of the disciples, you could see he just healed all of these people. I know you're in charge, Jesus, but maybe you don't care about storms. Maybe you don't care about us like you care about those sick people. Maybe a storm isn't as big of a deal as a leper. But no... Do you notice that Jesus doesn't say to them as the wind's blowing, there are worse storms than this. He's like, let me tell you about a hurricane, a category five hurricane. He doesn't say, at least you're not lepers. Because they just saw a leper get healed, right? He doesn't give them any sense of dismissiveness or he doesn't minimize their pain. Instead, He calms and quiets the sea. And the disciples are amazed. In verse 27, they ask, or they kind of rhetorically say, Who is this man? Even the winds and waves obey him. They saw that Jesus was in charge of bodies and even things like mental illness or demons. And now they say he's even in charge of nature. He's even in charge of the wind and the waves. And they were amazed. In a few moments, we'll talk about what happens after this. Jesus casts out demons, throws them in pigs. What, it, what Matthew is trying to show us, see, God reveals something to us in the words of Matthew, but also in the structure and stories of Matthew. We have to pay attention to the order that Matthew was putting things in. So is it an accident that he deals with a social outsider and then a cultural outsider and then a, a religious outsider? Boom, 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 in in Matthew chapter 8, the verses we looked at last week. Look at chapter 8. There is no part of the human body or of creation that Jesus is not asserting his lordship over. 
whether that's your soul, your eternal destiny, the winds and the waves, mental illness, physical disease, spiritual oppression, that you will not find a category that we suffer under that Jesus is not being displayed as having all authority over. As he would say to his disciples at the very end, all authority has been given to me. So stories like these, they, they force us to reconsider that temptation to be dismissive or to compare our pain. It forces us to reconsider that there is something in our life that God is not concerned with or that does not matter to him. If, if there is something in your life or in this world that is not right, Jesus cares about it. Jesus wants to do something about it. If there is something in this world or in your life that is distorted from God's design, it matters to God, and he's going and he's working to do something about it, whether that be physically, whether that be socially, whether that be spiritually, whether that be in creation. Like, you just have to become a person that sees everything matters to Jesus, and he is in charge of all of it, especially if you're the kind of person that's prone to minimizing or diminishing your pain, because it could be worse. It could be this. It could be that. And instead, Jesus is saying, all of this matters to me. All of you matters to me. So listen, frankly, yes, someone probably has it worse than you. I got to talk to a guy after the first service that maybe no one has it worse than him. In half an hour, he was like, I don't know if anybody has it worse than me. And after about 25 minutes, I was like, I think maybe you're right. But for most of us, someone does have it worse than you, right? But listen, you don't have it worse than you. Do you know what I mean by that? Your pain is your pain. What you've lived is what you've lived. The comparative suffering game has never helped anyone do anything. It's like, I don't know, if, if someone is has you trapped an inch above water and you're just like gasping for breath as ice cubes are floating in your mouth. And someone's like, you could be on fire. It's like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know, comparative suffering doesn't relieve the suffering of anybody. Yes, it could be worse for you, but no, you have it as bad as you have it. And there's a temptation to think that because somebody has it worse, God doesn't care about you, or he doesn't care about what you're dealing with. We have to become a people that believe all we are and all we are facing matters to Jesus. So, okay, these first two ones were the easy ones. Who's in charge? Jesus. What's he in charge of? Everything. And, and then, if you've been around the block a while in Christianity, you get the big question in response to that. So, if God is in charge of everything, and we matter so much to him, how could he let this happen? God, by awkward silence, who's ever wrestled with that? Right? Has anybody ever asked you that? If your God is so good, and he's so powerful, how could he let something like that happen? And listen, people who ask that are usually terrible at reading the Bible, meaning they don't, and they don't know much about it. But you could make that argument from the Bible if you want. Here's what I mean. 
I had a guy one time, a 70-year-old guy, he looked at me because I was tired. And when you work for a church, you feel like you've got to do everything. We've got to fix everything. We've got to change the world. We're going to do it all, all the time, nonstop. And he looked at me and he said, what do you think it was like to be the next leper in line when Jesus said he was done healing for the day? You know, in Mark chapter 1, it records a lot of these similar events. And after Jesus does all of these healings, a whole town's worth of people come. They go through the night to be healed by Jesus. His disciples can't find him the next morning. And he's out in the woods praying. And they say, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And in response, Jesus says, let's go somewhere else. So I want you to imagine, maybe you brought your sick child through the night. Because you heard about this man who's casting out demons and healing people. And there you are with a sick child. There you are with your leprosy, watching Jesus sail across the sea. What was it like to be next in line when he said he was done and he'd had enough? Jesus didn't heal everyone's bodies in his earthly ministry. He didn't heal every leper. And so we, we press up against one of the great mysteries of the mind of God. Some get healed, and some watch Jesus get in a boat to go to another town. And we're left wondering, well, where is he? And sometimes you may think that this is just reserved for people who don't get the healing, the question, where is he? But let's press it a little bit further. See, even when you do get the healing, there's a good chance you're going to be asking that question after the fact. So from here, Jesus arrives on the other side of the lake. We're going to look at the story a little bit more next week. Two men, the, the whole town became structured around avoiding these two violent, crazy people. I don't, this is not a joke. This is not one bit funny. Y'all, being around someone who's demon-possessed is one of the scariest, most uncomfortable experiences you can have in your life. And imagine you have two of them living in a graveyard who are violent and aggressive, and it's, it's restructured the whole, the whole way the town operates. These men come out to Jesus. Jesus doesn't go looking for them. They approach Jesus, and they're antagonistic, and they, they do some theology accusations, and Long story short, Jesus takes the demons out of them, throws them into pigs. The pigs do a swine dive off the cliff. Did you catch that? That was a joke. Did you catch that? Swine dive off of the cliff into the water. And it's like, let my people go, right? Does something amazing and miraculous. This fear, this thing that had screwed up the town for who knows how long. They're set free from it. And then verse 34 we read, the entire town came out to meet Jesus. That's how big of a deal it was. Does this mean literally every human? I don't know. Enough for it to think like, I think that was the whole town. The whole town comes out because Jesus set these people free. And he's, they came out to Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. <laughs> Violent men, miraculously set free. And the town comes out and says, appreciate your ministry. Please leave us alone. Don't, don't do this. Get away. Why? Because Jesus killed their pigs. I was an economic moneymaker for the town. It's like, listen, Jesus, we know we have some problems here morally 
you know, or these guys are violent and they're doing all kinds of awful stuff, but the economy is chugging along. The economy is chugging along. These pigs were real money makers. Listen, in life, if you're going through something difficult now, I really need you to hear this. In life, you will come to see that are people, there are people who really enjoy you being broken. There are people who really benefit from your dysfunction. Here's a simple example. That applies at least at some point in our life to, I would guess, 90% of the people in this room. Maybe you're someone who's learned that other people's needs matter more than yours do. So only the needs of other people matter. Not only is that not true, it's profoundly unhealthy for you. You do that for long enough, and the consequences are severe. And maybe... You got convicted in a sermon. Maybe today you're like, you know what? I actually have to start treating myself like a human being. I have, you've got no verse that says you have no needs and you shouldn't think about your needs at all. And if you think you have a verse, go read that verse you're thinking about again. Don't look only to your own needs, but also. To, so you can look at more than one person's needs at a time. Let the reader understand. So you get convicted and you're like, you know what? I'm going to open up in community group. I'm going to find a safe place and share. I'm going to go get counseling. I'm going to start learning how to create healthy boundaries. And you start saying no to people. When you get healthy, there are going to be people in your life who aren't too excited about it. When you start saying no and you don't say yes to everything, people are going to feel like you changed the rules. And they're going to get mad at you. Listen, am I the only one who became a Christian and lost all of my friends? I became a Christian and I came home from summer camp and I was like, you guys aren't going to believe what I learned. I told everyone I knew the gospel. I was like, you don't understand. Like, you stand condemned before a righteous God, but you can be set free. And I spent the next six months alone reading my Bible. So even in the healing, there will be temptations to ask, where are you? How could you? There's always a cost to following Jesus. The cost may be your herd of pigs. But if you follow Jesus long enough, at some point you will feel the sting and wonder, where are you? When the miracle comes and everyone around you is angry because they aren't the ones who received it. Where are you? I've asked that question so many times in my life, some version of where are you, how could you, don't you care? And what I want is for the heavens to open. I want Jacob's ladder, and that's the Old Testament reference, if you guys don't know, is Jacob sees a ladder, and angels are coming up and going down, and then he talks to God. Like, I want the heavens to open up, and Jesus be like, I heard what you said, let's talk about it. I'm gonna... I want Jesus to come down with PowerPoint charts and say, this is why it happened, this is what I'm doing about it, this is who you're going to be in light of it. So real quick, like if you're here, maybe today, like you come in and you're just drowning your way into church, wondering where are you and what have you done? First, I want you to know that is one of the most normal questions you can ask in following Jesus. If you're wrestling with that, that doesn't mean like your faith box is broken or something like that. 
It actually puts you in a long line of some of the strongest men and women in the Bible. Like, think about it for a second. God says to Moses, set my people free. And I want you, Moses, to go and tell Pharaoh, the most powerful human being in the world, that he has to let all of his slave labor go. You guys remember what Moses says to God? He basically says, but my speech impediment. I'm scared. I, can, I don't talk right, God. And listen, if I'm Moses, and I'm like, okay, kind of cool that I get this huge mission, but God, I don't talk right. Like my mouth, sound, he won't understand my words, and I'm going to embarrass myself, so I, I want an angel to come and put a fiery coal on my mouth and purify my jaw and give me the most powerful, beautiful words to say. Give me a script, God. And you remember what God says to Moses? He says, I'll be with you. I know you're afraid. I'll be with you. I'll speak for you. Job lost more than most of us will ever have. Think about that sentence. He lost more than most of us will ever have. And he cries out, literally, implicitly, how could you? Don't you care? I've done nothing wrong. And at the end of Job, he's brought into the presence of God. Job receives no explanation. He receives no apology. He receives no answer. But God says, here am I and I am with you. Here in the boat, the disciples say, Lord, save dying. And Jesus says, I'm here. The answer to our cries is rarely apology or explanation. Some of you really need to hear that. The answer to our cries of where are you, how could you, is rarely going to be an apology or an explanation. Rather, it's a promise. Where are you? We have to become a people who hear the voice of Jesus saying, I'm in the boat with you. This is the great message of the cross. God enters into our suffering. He takes our pain and carries it, not theoretically or conceptually, he carries it in his body. He takes our sin and he bears it on his shoulders in his own soul. And the bottom drops out. This life's going to get real hard for you at some point if it hasn't already. It'll get real hard probably a couple of times. And when that happens, we have to fight. We have to resist the temptation to conclude that either God doesn't care or he's no longer with us. Because at the cross, we see a God who gets involved. He's not far away. You notice he doesn't calm the storm from the shore. What's it say about our God that he calms the storm from the boat? He doesn't forgive our sins from heaven far off. He forgives our sins from the cross. The promise of our pain is the presence of God. The answer to our pain is the presence of God. So, when the bottom drops out in life, we have to learn to become, I would call it, archaeologists of grace. That's where we're digging through our stories. We're digging through our circumstances. We're digging through what we've lived to find evidence that God is in charge and that He is with us. 
We have to become a people who learn to stop searching for answers and explanations that are not promised and instead become a people who look for the presence of Jesus in our pain. And please don't make the mistake of thinking this is a one-time event or, you know, if we just got everybody wound up enough, we could all see Jesus and then it would be done for the rest of our life. It's a continual returning to the man who's in the boat with us. It's a continual search for the presence of Christ that we hunger for and we strive for because only there will we find relief for our pain. And one of the most simple, profound ways we do this is by anchoring ourselves in a local church. For the first few hundred years of church history, all, all of the preachers interpreted this passage allegorically, and you can just go Google what that means, but they understood the boat here to be referring to the local church. Where do we find the presence of Jesus? Where do we weather the storms? The local church. And I would just say, listen, setting expectations, if you're visiting here, it won't be long before something bothers you here. There you go. It just won't, it won't be long. Um, don't be the person saying, as soon as I find the perfect spouse, I will marry them. Because they're not perfect, right? Or you ever met, somebody, met a young person that married someone that they thought was perfect? And what happens when that person learns that they weren't perfect? There is no perfect church, but the church is the only place a Christian can thrive long term. If you've been looking for a church for a long, long time, like with all the love and empathy I have for you, I would say maybe you're part of the problem. There, there is no perfect church. Every church is going to do something to you. But here's what happens when we root ourselves in the local church. You know, there's, there's going to be pain in your life that is so overwhelming and suffocating that it is blinding to you. It's blinding to you. And you won't be able to see. And so we'll have friends around us, brothers and sisters, who we can say, not why did this happen, not how could he, but people that we can say, help me see God's hand in this. Where is he? Help me see that God is near. There's, there's going to be Sundays that you come and it's just, you can hardly breathe from the pain, let alone sing. But, but your pain will never be great enough to keep this whole church from singing. You come here and your brothers and sisters will sing for you. And your arms are weak and tired. They will carry them for you. When there are tears on your face, your brothers and sisters will sit with you they will comfort you. And I'll be honest, maybe this will make some of you uncomfortable. There's plenty of Sundays I don't want to go to church. If you're looking for a hobby or a club, this is a weird one. I mean, I don't know, get a little bit, oh, this is a bad thing to say. Get a little bit critical after the service and just look around and ask yourself, if I had a choice, how many of these people would I hang out with regularly? You know how different we are? You know how many different interests we have? And yet, here we are, under one banner, the name of Jesus. He's, he's done something that has brought such a strange, odd group of people together. So it's a weird club. We don't do always things that are particularly fun. It takes a lot to go to church here. We ask you to give money. We ask you to serve. We'll push on you when you're not doing things the way that God would have you. Like, we ask a lot of you to go to church here. 
And I'm just frankly not always excited to get up and come here. But what I know is it's never let me down. Even on the hardest weeks, even on the times where it just feels like the storm is insurmountable and there's no way out, every week when you gather with the people of God, you get crystal clear, tangible evidence that the man is in the boat with us. Because no matter how flat the sermon is, or you know, like, I really don't like it when, whatever. A couple of weeks ago, Pastor Sam preached, and I had like a dozen people come up to me like, man, I really like it when he preaches. You should take more breaks. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, whatever, you know? So maybe you're the guy that's like, I wish Sam preached more. Or it's like, oh, man, I don't like when this guy preaches. And this is a week where the music's off, and you're just like, even when it's a dud, and our performance has been a C- minus in the show we're putting on for you, every week we get evidence that God is in the boat and he's with us because every week we remember the night Jesus was betrayed where he took a loaf of bread and he thanked God for it. He broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. So listen, if you're wondering where is he, you get to come and taste and see it. You get to touch it. You can rip off a piece of bread and, and, and feel it. You can smell what the bread smells like. You used to be able to smell incense in here, but Pastor Stephen vetoed me and rebuked me. So now you can only smell bread in the service. But do you see what I mean? He gave us something that would arouse our senses so that we can come and eat this and remember what he's done for us. If you're feeling guilty or you feel like God has forgotten, come and taste and remember what he has done for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Drink this and remember what I've done for you. If you come and you wonder, where is he? You get to taste and drink and remember. This is what seals your relationship with God, not your religious performance, not how well things are going or not going for you. If you're wondering, does he still love me? Drink this and remember what he's done for you. So every week, I mean, we get concrete evidence that the man is in the boat with us, that he's in charge, and that all we are matters to him. So our tradition is to come forward, or you can go to the stations in the back, rip off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever you'd like. Wine will have a piece of twine wrapped around it, and there'll be gluten-free elements to my left, your right. This is a sacred meal reserved for Christians. So if, if you don't believe what it symbolizes, please respect our tradition by not participating. I'll pray for us, and then Christians, let's come remember our hope together. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.